Com. Egypt, 
back into a bondage where they are again entangled with the elements of the world. And those of you who have read the book, Thy Kingdom Come, will know what I'm talking about. It's also covered in the pre-church report. Uh, aspects of what the early church was are also covered in the book, Higher Liberty, all of which are available to people who come and join with us uh, on the Living Network and pick a contact minister and become a part of a network of people seeking the kingdom. Because that's what the early church was, individuals working together, seeking the kingdom in a network bound by faith, hope, and charity. That's what the kingdom was in the days of Moses. It was a network. Ten families pick a minister. Those ministers get together. They pick a minister. They created a network which created a nation bound by the love and principles of those weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Almost immediately after anybody starts to go that route, somebody will stick their head up and try to create mindless religious rituals, doctrines, dogmas, and what have you that have nothing to do with the precepts that require virtues of forgiveness and thanksgiving because they don't really want to go that way, but they want the appearance of being a very godly people. If you don't have that godly nature in what you are doing, you're not going to get any closer to God or Christ by performing rituals that have nothing to do with the truth that Christ came to preach, to love thy neighbor as thyself. If you get the ritual right in your churches, sing the right songs, all this, how does that show your love for your neighbor? Now, the early church was the entire social welfare system for Christians. There was no other social welfare system available to Christians other than one operating in faith, open charity. Christians could not force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. Now, if you create a society in which you are basing everything on this perfect law of liberty where you have the right to choose how much to give and when to give it and to whom to give it, then the power of your society rests in the hands of the individual who does the contributing. The elder of each family is the elder in a congregation, and he would be a presbyter in the Greek, and the power to run the church would be in his hands. Well, that would be too much power. What would happen is you would create some sort of board of directors. The richer people on the board of directors would gain power and control over the congregation and how the money was spent, and you would just soon have uh, kings uh, in every church who was ruling over every other member in the church. So that isn't the structure that Christ was creating. And it certainly was not the structure that was created by Moses, and it certainly was not the structure created by Abraham, which almost nobody understands. And again, you'd have to read the book, Thy Kingdom Come, the first few chapters anyway, in order to understand exactly what Abraham was doing. So the structure had to be different than that. And the structure was based on this concept of altars. Altars of clay. Every family was an altar of clay, altar of Adama. It was a gathering of earth and Adama. Adam, the, the sons of Adam, gathered in the family. This is God's institution, the family. He instituted husband, wife, children. That was his institution. When the father dies, then the sons become elders of their own family. And how do those people gather together in a free society. What binds them? Contracts, covenants, constitutions? Well, you can read that book, too, also available free uh, to the network. No, that isn't the answer. You are to be bound by faith, hope, and charity, by love for one another. How do you do that in a society and, make, and create a, an efficient society that can face every catastrophe coming your way? whether it be natural or war or other governments or, or marauding groups of uh, gangs or whatever it is. Often governments aren't much different than the marauding groups of gangs, 
but they have a certain amount of formality that makes them look legitimate. But the reality is a lot of the governments do have a legitimate power over you, but it's because you made covenants with them, because you've applied to them, because you've prayed to them for benefits, and that gives them true power and authority. So they aren't really a gang. They're like Pharaoh. But we want to return to Egypt. And that's, of course, exactly what we've done in order to obtain the benefits to take care of us through Great Depressions and what have you. We didn't each of us share amongst ourselves through faith, hope, and charity. We went to the government. And the government supplied us with a great many benefits, but they only get what they have to give you because they've taken away from somebody else. That is not charity. So that society is actually living by the sword of that government because that government compels the offering. They have a legitimate right to compel those offerings of their members because their members have agreed to this common purse, which Proverbs tells us to stay away from because it runs towards death and evil and wickedness. So how does the society of God work, the institution of God work? How does this thing, church, work? You, as an elder within that church, will give something to someone you believe is doing the work of God in caring for a society who is serving Christ by feeding his sheep. This is what the early apostles were. They were shepherds that were to feed the sheep. Now, yes, some of that feeding was just spiritual, but we also know that sometimes real bread was involved. Real benefits were involved to take care of the needy of their society. This was pure religion to do this without the help of the world, the constitutional order or systems of government. That's what the word world in that case means when they talk about pure religion in James. You are to be unspotted by that world. You're not to be dependent upon that world. You're to take care of each other. Now, a lot of people think, oh, we couldn't do that. I mean, what happened if there's a catastrophic illness? We don't have the resources in our little tiny congregation. Well, that's because you're not thinking kingdom. If you love each other in your congregation as much as you love yourself, then that precept should be repeated in your congregation in relationship to other congregations. So if your minister is very interested in gathering a little congregation together and he's very servant-oriented to that little congregation, he's trying to help out that little congregation, that's great. But if he isn't equally thinking about the next congregation or the congregation over here or the congregation over there, as much as he is thinking about his local group, then he is not kingdom thinking. He is outside of the, the precepts of Christ because your congregation has to love the next congregation as much as it loves itself because that's what you do within the congregation, right? So it's repeated over and over again. And so those ten congregations that gather together because their ministers have picked each other in a congregation of ministers, they pick a minister. That minister that they pick becomes an episcopos, a overseer, a bishop, that's the way it's translated, to these congregations. But he doesn't do it by exercising authority. He does it by service. Because as he serves the ministers, the ten ministers that have picked him, and you could say are under him, but they're not under his authority, because remember how you get higher in the church, according to Christ, is he who is best servant of servants is the next step up. But he's not really going up, because like Christ, he's washing the feet of the men he serves. He's not ruling over them. They still have the power to say, we don't accept you as our minister because we don't think you're ministering to us. We think you're trying to rule over us. They could do that. The same as the presbyters, the elders of each family within the congregation could say, our minister is trying to dictate to us against our conscience, and so he's not serving us. He's serving himself. So in that society that you see created by this method, where the power of choice remains in the hands of those that are served, and the manner in which the service is provided remains in the hands of him that serves, 
creates a completely different kind of society and their relationships and bonds within that society. Now, I painted a little bit of a picture here, and a lot of you might have missed it. How these altars work, back to the altars of clay. The family is an altar of clay, but we're allowed to create altars of stone, and that's what we're doing, because the living stones of the altar is are these ministers. These are the stones. In your altar of clay, you take an offering, something you decide that you're going to contribute to the welfare of your society. And you give it to this man who you think is a man of service. And you hand it to him and you say, do good with these funds. I give them to you as if I were giving them to Christ. Because I believe you are a man of Christ in the service of Christ. Now when you give them, you must give them up entirely. You never give up your right to choose to give the next time, like you do in all the other governments. The other governments, when you join up, they tell you how much to give because you gave up your right to choose, your liberty. You know, you can join our group, but you have to give us the power to decide how much you're going to give. That's the governments of the world. That's their precept. In God's kingdom, the precept is you keep your right to choose, but what you give up today, you give up entirely. Now, many churches today, especially amongst Protestants, they don't give up entirely. They give, and then they join the board of directors, and then they tell the minister how he's going to spend the money. <laughs> they simply hire the minister for a salary, and then they control the purse strings they've never really given up. And that creates all kinds of spiritual problems, and it also creates all kinds of legal problems. So when you give to that minister, you must give entirely to him and let him choose, and you watch him to make sure he does a good job. But you must give up entirely. This is why Abraham Moses talked about burnt offerings. It wasn't a matter of setting them on fire. And again, we explain this in detail in the book, Thy Kingdom Come. It was a matter of them giving up entirely that which was given. And that's very important because when you do that, your minister now has a free hand to serve as he sees fit. He can exercise his God-given conscience. And his conscience is not subject to your authority anymore. Now, of course, if he goes awry and he, he, he's doing a bad job, you just don't give to him anymore. And so this is the only way to create a society that is based on voluntarism and free will offering, is that you give up what you give up entirely. If you don't, then you haven't given freely or completely. And that's very important that you do. So in the creation of a church structure, which is going to be the topic of discussion this weekend for the next few weeks, you have to keep that precept in mind, is that what is given must be given up entirely. Now, we talked about giving up as if you were giving to Christ. So when you give that money or, or sheep or whatever it is that you give to this altar uh, of God, which is created by living stones, men, you give to a particular man, you don't give to a board of directors, because they aren't glued together with mortar in this altar. These stones are unhewn, and they just fit together. And that's a very important concept. These are precepts they're trying to tell you in the story, and unfortunately, uh, Pharisees came along and turned these precepts into mindless rituals, and next thing you know, they're killing sheep and burning them up and, and uh, telling everybody they needed to do this or God won't be happy with them. And they're taking doves and they're killing doves and they're putting up. And you'd be surprised at what the actual text says. It's completely different than what you have been led to believe. But, of course, you had to be led to believe these false teachings in order to get you to get as far away from Christ and his kingdom as they could get you so that you didn't have any hope or chance of getting back except by the grace of God. And, of course, now we're going to show you that way back because we're not only going to tell you to repent, turn around, we're going to show you, okay, now that you're turned around, this is the way you go. We're going to show you the straight way, the narrow way, 
and few are going to follow it because they're they're going to be pulled by their doctrine or their need to believe that they're right or the whatever it is. There's going to be you know all these seeds that are sowed out there. Some are going to fall in bad places and some are going to be choked out by the weeds. It's up to you to do the striving. That's what Christ says: strive to find your way back to the kingdom. And you need to start now because you don't have that much time. We don't have, God gives us a lot of time, but he doesn't give us any time to waste. So we don't want to be doing any of that wasting time. But back to this idea, when you give him an offering, the stone of the altar, and you choose who he is. I mean, obviously God chooses the stones of his altar. But which one are they? Do, do they get a badge when God chooses them that they wear on their shirt and it, and it says, uh, this is the stone of my altar, signed Jesus, signed Yeshua? No, you don't get that. You have to determine, is that really a minister of Christ? Is he really a servant of Christ? Or is he a self-servant? Or is he a servant of iniquity? Is he whatever it is? You know, you, if you think he's not a servant of Christ, you don't need to know the rest. You just need to find that servant of Christ. But when you give him something to do the work of Christ, you give it to him entirely. But when you do, you say, I'm giving this to Christ and I'm handing it to you because I believe that you will use it for the purposes of Christ. What you've done is created a sacred purpose trust. Now, it's not sacred unless you've given entirely because sacred has to do with separate and if you haven't entirely given it it can't become sacred and it's purpose because it's his Christ you're giving it for his purposes not for your purposes not for the minister's purposes but for Christ's purposes now the minister needs to use his God-given conscience to determine what that is, and he is answerable to Christ because he's got Christ's stuff. He doesn't have your stuff. He has Christ's stuff. You gave it up, right? When you gave your stuff up entirely, it was given up entirely. He is no longer answerable to you. He doesn't have to give it back. He doesn't have to use it according to the way you, you come to him the next day. And you say, you know, I want you to give this money to so-and-so. Well, I don't think I'm going to do that. But I gave you that money. And no, you gave Christ that money. And you gave it up entirely. And it's none of your business anymore how I use it. Now, it is your business in the sense that you can watch the preacher and make a choice about your next offering. But it isn't your business as to how he uses it. It is his business. It is his job. And he must use it accordingly. Now, you can come and certainly advise him and let him know, you know, this widow over here, she really needs help. I just found out about this yesterday. And he brings it to your attention. But the reality is, it's his choice. It's no longer your choice. If it's your choice, you create all kinds of legal problems, but you also create all kinds of spiritual problems. So you must give up entirely to create this sacred purpose trust. And that's why the first guideline starts off with, in our guidelines of his church, altars and auxiliaries. We use this in all of our institutions, these guidelines. His church and sacred purpose trust is an irrevocable, ministerial, charitable altar of Christ. Extremely important to understand that. That's not just casual words. That is going to be implemented throughout the guidelines. It's going to be implemented throughout the administrative guidelines. And we cannot stray from that precept. So once you give, you give entirely. There's no coming back and saying, I changed my mind, I want it back now. It's gone.
I pledge allegiance to the King of Kings and to his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. One holy nation and a heavenly Father, great mercy, justice for all. Gold and silver is tremendously undervalued. Global demand vastly exceeds mine supply by more than 60% annually. There is little in the financial world more certain than a coming explosion in the prices of gold and silver. The U.S. dollar continues to lose value and respect as the world's reserve currency. Our nation faces challenges on many fronts, and a day doesn't pass without another economist bringing forth warnings of impending economic calamity. There has never been a better time than right now to acquire physical gold and silver. Discount Gold and Silver Trading was founded on the principles of truth and honesty. We believe in providing a quality product, quality service, and most importantly, competitive pricing. We provide all forms of precious metals, including American gold, silver, platinum, and rare investment and circulated coins. Silver bars, rounds, and 90% silver bags are on hand for the silver investor. Gold self-directed IRAs are available. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. Toll free, that's 1-800-375-4188. Now listen to me. The Bible says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. I want you to know that a corporation is Caesar. Government takeover of the church. This DVD is the most powerful tool we have for waking up those asleep in the pews. The scripture calls for his people to come out of her. The corporate church is the apostate church, the whore that rides the beast. Get this DVD for a donation of $25 from FirstAmendmentRadio.com. Make copies and give them away to your corporate church friends and loved ones. The truth will make them free. They will watch the DVD, Government Takeover of the Church. Order online today at FirstAmendmentRadio.com or call 559-781-3773. Who will tell them if not you? Have you seen Loose Change? The most popular documentary in the 911 Truth Movement. With the coming change in government, now is the time to push for justice and get this truth into the hands of millions of Americans. First Amendment Radio is offering both videos, Lose Change and 911 Justice on DVD. We will ship two copies of both videos to you for 10 bucks cash. Yes, two copies, one for you and one for you to give away. You will see and hear Larry Silverstein admit that they decided to pull the building. Why are they not being pursued? The people must know. Justice must be had. The time is now. Two copies of both videos, Loose Change and 911 Justice, for 10 bucks cash. No checks, please. To First Amendment Radio, 139 East Tulare Avenue, Tulare, California, 93274. Retreat here in the latter part of September. Uh, we're trying to arrange some accommodations for those people who can't do the tent camping thing. We have an RV park here, so there's uh, plenty of parking spaces. Uh, there's plenty of tent sites. Uh, we got thousands of acres you can set up tents. There's boating, uh, fishing, hiking. Uh, we probably won't put anybody on horseback because we don't know how good you can ride. <laughs> but uh, uh, the fact is we're going to do a lot of talking about the kingdom. We're going to do some organizing. We're going to be meeting people from Australia to South Carolina uh, to all over the country, hopefully. We don't know how many are coming. You should register if you're coming. Go to the website, org. Go to the drop-down menus on the left-hand side. Go to events. Go to retreat. And uh, when you get to that page, uh, right away, almost at the top, there's a place where you can register. Tell us how many people are in your party, if there's any special needs that you're going to have, and and come. Now, there will be people here uh, uh, working as early as the 17th. Uh, by the 23rd, uh, more people will start showing up, but the major uh, amount of people will be on the 26th of September. So that's not very far away, so if you're coming, let us know. If you're coming from a long ways off, get onto the Living Network, and you can meet people along the way. Uh, that's very important. Uh, 
and uh, come to hear not only what you hear here on the radio, but there will be lots of campfire talks uh, where we will talk about some things that we will not even talk about here on the radio. And these fellowships are very important, so if there's any way you can make it, try to make it. Okay, we're talking about the church and what it really is supposed to look like. And I'm talking about it in modern terms, but not forgetting or forsaking the ways of Christ, the ways of Moses, and the ways of Abraham. Because in those ways, when you lay them on top of each other, the precepts of God will show up. Because these are all prophets and servants of God uh, from the early church back to the days of Abraham. what they were doing was the same. Now, we've talked earlier about what the false church has done and how it has deviated, and there's a great deal more to it, which we try to cover some of it in the book that Kingdom Comes and the latter part of that. But we give you this foreknowledge of what Abraham was doing, what Moses was doing, how the Hebrew language can be translated properly so that you will actually understand what the early Christians understood and not see Christianity through the eyes of Pharisees because they had it wrong. They, they read the Hebrew, they read the Greek, and they got it wrong. They were all confused. They were uh, actually anti-Christ. And many of the churches today are anti-Christ in what they are doing. So we need to conform to Christ and not to some particular religion, not to his holy church as if it's some sort of institutional religion. We're not an institutional religion. We are a congregation. We are uh, a church, but what does that mean, and how is that bound together, and what kind of institution are we creating here? If we're not creating an institution of Christ, then we're not doing what we should be doing. Okay, His Church and Sacred Purpose Trust is an irrevocable, ministerial, charitable altar of Christ. The altar stones are the living stones of Christ, which are the ministers of the church. And they are the church-specific. You'll hear me use that term, church-specific and church in general. The congregation is altogether a church in general, but the church-specific is the ministers. The term is used loosely. We know the word church comes from the word ecclesia, which means called out. We're all called out of sin. We're all called out of Babylon. Uh, but the apostles were particularly called out and appointed a kingdom to be the ministers of that kingdom and the princes of that kingdom, but that kingdom's princes operated by faith, hope, and charity and not exercising authority. It's very important to have that body of men uh, as ministers because that will be recognizable to the world. And to go into that in detail would take up more than this show but that's very important. So let's go on to two. Item two in the guidelines is only 20 of them. We aren't going to get up to all of them today. I tried to do a show a number of years ago or months ago that I tried to cover them all in one hour. Impossible. Uh, the grantors of this sacred trust, which is that item that you gave, uh, that sacred trust are the people who grant tangible and intangible property to his church for the conversion of its use to Jesus the Christ, his kingdom and his service. In other words, they give an offering to the minister who is his church. And they don't give it to a group of ministers. They give it to one minister. You don't go up and say, okay, you three guys, here's, a bunch of money divided up as you see fit. No. You choose what you want to give to a particular minister and you give it to that minister. He's bound together by faith, hope, and charity with other ministers. He may even be bound together uh, in more ways than that, but at least that is the beginning of the bondage that he will uh, live by is this bondage of faith, hope, and charity, which is... uh, a chain of virtue that holds him together with these other men. It's not like the bondage of the world, but it is still a way in which he is bound together because a trust is an entity. And so what he receives in trust, he receives in trust. 
and then how he uses that or, or distributes that or shares that with his brothers will be determined by his own actions. But the church is always beginning with one man chosen or recognized by more than one man, two or more people, that we believe that this is an altar of the stone. And by his gathering together with other stones and picking a minister, you create this compounded sacred purpose trust that can stand in the world as an entity, a born entity to all other governments. And it's it's more ideas than most people can juggle at one time, so we're not going to dwell on it too much right here, but you're going to start seeing that precept also repeated over and over again in shaping the guidelines and the administrative guidelines, is that each minister is an individual stone. He is an individual uh, entity coming together with other individual entities by nothing more than sharing and love and personal sacrifice one for each other. But that is the way in which the kingdom is bound. Not only amongst the people, but amongst the ministers. Number three, a minister of trust of his church is nominated by the uh, presented members of the congregation for assembly of the people and appointed by a protector of the church. Now that's really a lot of things going on there. And in the form that we offer, which we call uh, A6 colon 6, which is just Act 6-6, six, six, uh, we, we show how this works all on one piece of paper. You as a individual choose to give a gift to a man who you believe is doing the work of Christ. And you make note of that in the top one-third of the sheet. And you give it to him. And you give him the sheet. And he makes note on that sheet in the middle that he accepts the gift on those terms, that it belongs to Christ and he is just a trustee of that gift. But by accepting that, he is also recognized as a minister of Christ's church because that's why you gave it to him. So two things have taken place there. A trust was created, a sacred purpose trust was created, and he was recognized as a minister of his church. Now, in order to consummate this, you must have someone else as a part of his church his holy church, created by Christ, established by Christ 2,000 years ago, recognize a third-party recognition of this event. It's kind of like a notary, but more so. And by that minister going to somebody and handing him that form, saying, I believe also that you are a minister of God, and I would like you to oversee this action of this man handing me these funds for the purposes of Christ. Do you recognize that they are for the purposes of Christ and that I am a minister of his church as this man believes I am? And if that overseer says yes, then he bears witness in the bottom half of that document. But that document alone is not enough. You need another one from another individual separate from that, not, you know, like husband and wife, filling out the two different forms, but two different individuals saying the same thing. Now you have a congregation of two recognizing a minister and someone else who is a minister recognizing that he is the minister to that individual and overseer of the actions between that group or congregation and this minister. Now that's an amazing legal concept, overlapping one another and confirming one another and consolidating one another, that most people in most churches have no concept of. But in law, it creates an almost impenetrable relationship by the state. And that's, that's going to be very important. You're marking with the paperwork, which is not the essential item. The paperwork is like a 
stake at the corner of your property saying, this is where we're at. This is what we're doing. It is a record, and you become a church of record by doing that. But that's not the end of the record keeping, which you will see later. Uh, but that is the beginning. When you have two or more people gathered together in my name, according to my purposes, and recognize this minister as a minister chosen by me, and they've consummated this with an offering, you've created an entity that is uh, absolutely amazing, and that's exactly what Abraham was doing with his altars of stone. That's exactly what Moses was doing, and that's exactly what Christ was doing. And they were doing this in the midst of a world that was going the other way. They began to go and create the altars of Abel, the altars of Seth, the altars of personal sacrifice by free will offerings, not compelling anybody to do anything. You are empowering your minister, but you have not lost any power yourself, only the offering. Now, the protector of a sacred purpose is accepted by the elected minister and recognized by the grantors of the trust as an anointed minister of his holy church. Okay, that's number four. So it's not really a directive so much as an explanation almost of number three, but we give it its own number because it's an important part of the process because that minister of the minister is an overseer of the relationship between the congregation and the minister. Now, before we go on any farther, it's very important to understand the status of the congregation has not changed one bit in this process. Because, see, we're in the business of returning every man to his family and every man to his possession. The congregation owns nothing in common. The congregation is not an unincorporated or incorporated association. The, if the congregation gives money to a minister and still has some decision-making power over that money or those funds or the objects or whatever the property was that was given, they still have some decision-making power over that, you now have an unincorporated association. And you do not want that because an unincorporated association is responsible. Every member is responsible for the actions of every other member. And it can be sued in a court of law. If you don't give up the offering entirely, <laughs> you are all vulnerable and responsible for everybody else. Now, in the kingdom, the congregation should be responsible for their neighbor because they are their neighbor's keeper but they cannot be compelled to be responsible for their neighbor they must be compelled by faith hope and charity now are we putting these pieces of the puzzle together you see you do not want to be compelled by law to take care of your neighbor you when we say law here we're referring to the laws of men and the judges that men appoint and the gods many that are out there you want to be compelled by Christ in you, by love, by compassion, by virtue. That is what, and if you're not compelled by that, then you cannot get closer to the kingdom. You see, the, the virtue is essential. The exercise of virtue is essential to grow a healthy, virtuous society. And any structure that you create that takes away the necessity of virtue to be the motivator the Holy Spirit to be the motivator, you take away the character of that society and turn it over to reprobate. So that's very important that everybody takes on the responsibility given them. The minister receives a gift. That's a responsibility. And he has to exercise that. Now, we don't have it on that form. But it's reasonable that if the minister receives a gift, a portion of that gift or some sort of equal portion of that gift that would uh, be whatever he would call a tithing, we'll discuss tithing later as to exactly what that means, but 
it should go to the overseer. It doesn't have to go in that instance. But it should be considered that what you receive needs to be passed up to the overseer who's actually doing work too. You see, what is given to the minister, he can actually keep for his own needs. But now, if he's what we call a license or commission minister, which we will get into later also, uh, he, it's not considered a salary what he's received. This is for the purposes of Christ. Now, if he has any expenses, absolutely, in the connection of his duty. But he may not be a 100% full-time minister. He may be only acting ex officio on a part-time basis because he's beginning the relationship. So those funds can only go for the purposes of of promoting that relationship as minister and whatever curtail. Uh, he is not made richer, but he should not be made poor by the exercise of his duties. So therefore, any expenses he can cover out of those funds. Number five, the beneficiary of his church and sacred purpose trust is Jesus Christ, a.k.a. Yeshua, highest son of David, son of man, king of God, the Father's kingdom on earth, high priest of the Most High God, according to the order of Melchizedek, Prince of Peace, etc. In other words, I just went through a number of different titles that he's given but to try to give you an idea. So what has been given to that minister is not his. It's his to decide to do with because he's the trustee. But it belongs to Christ. Very important legal concept. Christ is not a citizen of the United States. He's not a citizen of Australia. He wasn't a citizen of Rome. His kingdom was not a part of the Roman Empire. Uh, he was separate. That's very important. That It's his stuff. It's not your stuff. Again, we're just repeating what we've already talked about and inferred by earlier guidelines, but here we actually spell it out in guideline number five. Guideline number six, his holy church has been appointed by the beneficiary to minister to his faithful, his children, and those who wish to return to the Lord in his kingdom on earth. Therefore, as his subjects and ministers, they represent the beneficiary in service. So, in other words, they are what we will call... Uh, representative beneficiary. Now, Christ said to his apostles who he appointed, feed my sheep. So in that way, the sheep themselves become the beneficiary of this trust. But they're not the direct beneficiary. The direct beneficiary is Christ. The trustee also is, in a sense, the beneficiary because he needs to he's doing this work full time he needs to take care of himself this precept is seen in the fact that offerings were given to the Levites and these were the burnt offerings and we're led to believe that they just killed these sheep and doves and set them on fire and burned them up when in reality this is what they used to take care of the needy of their society it's also what they used to take care of themselves now that may be controversial if you think so wait till you read thy kingdom come and find out how those instructions have been misinterpreted and are very clearly interpreted once you understand the Hebrew language and how it's constructed. An amazing uh, language, to say the least, and almost nobody that I know of is uh, intensely taking advantage of its major codification, which isn't complex, isn't mysterious, it isn't difficult to follow, it's very easy to follow once it's revealed how it works. And there are there are uh, Jewish scholars that understand to some degree how this works. I have not come across the ones that have actually analyzed it like I have. I, I have to believe they're out there somewhere. I'd love to see them, but God has uh, grown this uh, desert bush by himself out here. So I, I cannot say... Uh, where I got this from other than and the Holy Spirit but the reality is the, the evidence is there when we've done our homework and we have another book coming out uh, we have a pamphlet on the subject sacrifice of sophistry that goes into it in a little bit 
but the next book will go into it in greater and greater depth um, if I get the time to finish it. But to understand the beneficiary is Christ, as it says in number five, number six, his holy church has been appointed by the beneficiary. That's that's a very important concept to remember is that Jesus says, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father has appointed unto me. And he did this to the apostles. And the apostles went out and appointed other guys. Uh, this is an apostolic succession. Apostolos simply means ambassador. And it goes from one to the next to the next to the next. But of course it depends upon the Holy Spirit being present in the individual to make it work. Now, it's been so long, we can't tell who really has true apostolic succession because there's been so many different people out there claiming to have been part of that succession. And as we saw in the Council of Nicaea back when we were talking blog talk, that was one of the things that they were having a problem with. All kinds of people were saying, oh, yeah, we we received the, the blessings of, you know, laying on of hands, et cetera, et cetera. And where's the record? Can you prove that this is the continual succession? No. Uh, but the fact is, I believe it's out there. I believe it's still going on. Who is really doing it uh, is only those people who really are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the frauds are out there, too. And you can't tell just by somebody saying. You have to see the fruits of what they are doing. You have to see that these are men of revelation. These are men of power. These are men that are moving not only with power in general, but the power of the Holy Spirit in leading people back to the kingdom, which is a system by which you live by faith, hope, and charity. And if they're not doing those things, which is what the Bible tells us they must be doing, then you have reason to suspect that they are not truly ministers of God. So his holy church is all over the place. It's not a corporate entity created by men. It's not created by me. It's not. Uh, it's created by Christ, and it's created by the Holy Spirit of Christ moving in men. And it depends upon the people' uh, recognition as much as it depends upon God's blessing. And that's, of course, exactly what we see with Christ when he enters into Jerusalem. They were all praising Hosanna, son of David highest son of David. It was Christ was the highest son of David before he entered Jerusalem, but when the people proclaimed it, then he was king. Because he doesn't make himself king because he has a bigger army than the next guy. He is made king by your acceptance, recognition, and acceptance. He becomes your king. And that recognition and acceptance is essential so that he can become your king. He's still king whether he's your king or not. But the Pharisees said, we have no king but Caesar. So who's your king? You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.